Let's give Abby another hand clap. She killed it. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. Well, good morning, church. How you guys doing? Man, how many how many of you guys enjoyed the retreat last week? Oh, come on, man. It was just a wonderful time. Wonderful time. In fact, I forgot to mention that was the most well-attended retreat in the history of Living Way. Over 220 people were at the retreat, man. So it was a blessing. If you guys didn't come, please make plans for next year because we're going to do it all over again. Amen? Man, my name is Pastor Ram, one of the pastors here at Living Way, and we're just glad that you're with us. Well, today we have a treat. Uh, my very own father-in-law, Pastor Guy Rimstead, who has been pastoring at Kern Valley Bible Church for almost 30 years. He has been teaching as a Bible teacher and then pastor different, different capacities for almost 50 years. And eschatology is his thing. Uh, he's been studying this topic for over 50 years. And he holds a special place in my heart, uh, not only because he is my father-in-law, but I actually, the first time I actually got to preach was at his church. He invited me to preach at his church. And that was the, that was the first and the last time me and my wife both uh, helped, planned a sermon together. The first and last time. <laughs> last time. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But uh, I, I, I know. I know. I know. And uh, also, I was actually ordained at Kern Valley Bible Church as well. So there's just a history, my own history, of just what it was for God to lead me into pastoral ministry has been such uh, a value for me through this man and through his ministry. So without any further ado, again, he's joined by his wife, my mother-in-law, Elizabeth Rimstead. And, uh, and so we're just so happy that you guys are here. You guys hold a special and a dear place in our hearts and in my heart. So without any further ado, if we could just give a big hand clap for Pastor Guy Rimstead. Come on up, Pastor Guy. There's your clock up there. You got to say 12. And when I came here, my daughter said to me, and my wife did too, my wife said, don't go too fast. And my daughter said, Dad, you go over my head. I will try. You know, usually I have people turn in their Bibles, but today we're going to follow PowerPoint quite a bit. If you hear me say turn, it's a habit I have because my church is always flipping their pages. We have a small country church that was affected by COVID. We're very healthy spiritually, prayer-wise, and Bible teaching. I teach doctrine in the morning. Then I have my Sunday morning service. I'm in 2 Timothy at night. I'm in uh, the book of Isaiah. And on Wednesday night, I'm in the book of Psalms. And you go, whoa. Yeah. That, I love Bible teaching. I love to do it. And we're, I'm a dinosaur in a day of a lot of young people. You guys are philosoraptors. Don't mess with me. Okay, I'm bigger than you are. Anyway, we're going to look at the case for pre-trib rapture. When I was a young man, they had, very, they had three views. They had pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, out of the seven-year tribulation period. And then they had a view that you never hear about anymore called the partial rapture. If you weren't right with God at the time of the rapture, you weren't going. And that view has disappeared. Now the popular views are mid-trib 
And believe it or not, post-trib, Southern Seminary and other seminaries within the Southern Baptist Convention are basically focusing on the end of the tribulation. We're all going to go through the tribulation period, believe it or not. Uh, I'm pre-trib by conviction because of the pictures in the Old Testament, because of all the New Testament truths. My son, David, didn't even believe in the rapture. Now he's pre-trib. I didn't put any pressure on him. He discovered it on his own by reading the Word of God. First example of the rapture in the Old Testament is Enoch. Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. Now, why did God take Enoch? We don't know. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5, it talks about Enoch being a righteous man. But why did God take him? Why didn't he just let him go up to the time of the flood, live a long life? But he took him. And what's interesting, he took Enoch... But Noah and his family went through the flood. Isn't it interesting that if he takes the church, Israel's going through the tribulation period to wake them up to their Messiah? Very simple truth, but just biblical insight. I'm not saying it's dogmatically true because we have no support for it, but it sure looks true because it is the days of Noah. 600 years before the flood, there could be a transition between the rapture and the time of a peace pact that the Antichrist, the beast, will sign with Israel in Daniel 9.27. Seven years of tribulation. We're not going to talk a lot about that. Then there's the case of Lot in the Old Testament. Lot was a righteous man, but if you read Genesis 19, you wouldn't think so. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the youngest to the oldest child, or adult, I should say, wanting to have a relationship with the two men who were angels that appeared at that door. And Lot was a typical believer in the Old Testament in the sense that he was compromised. He was compromised. Literally what it says in verse 17, and when they had brought them outside to leave the city, one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, which he disobeyed at first, or you will be swept away. So Lot does escape, but he literally has to be dragged out of the city. And it says, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was Zoar. And then he got scared in Zoar because Zoar probably know how popular he was standing at the gate of Sodom, being a compromised believer in my in my thinking. And so he flees to the mountains with his two daughters. And we all know what happens. His wife turns around. And to this day, when the Arabs see a pillar of salt and the southern end of the Dead Sea, they call it Lot's wife because she turned into a pillar of salt. Then we come to an example of Lot in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2, 6 through 9 says, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. If he rescued, keep that word in mind, rescued, it's very important, rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to what? Rescue the godly from temptation and to keep 
the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. You know, when you go back to the account in Genesis 19, Lot was really not anxious to leave. They had to drag him out of there. And the angel told them, we cannot do anything until you're taken out of this city. God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. He won't do it, beloved. He won't do it. Then we come to another picture. And these are only pictures because it's a mystery. The rapture is a mystery revealed by the Apostle Paul. Never stated before, Apostle Paul dealt with the issue of the rapture. Israel's in Egypt, right? And they're going through the early plagues. And they're in the land of Goshen. And it is interesting when you look at those passages, and I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail, but when you get to the swarm of flies, God puts his people in Goshen, and the rest of Egypt is affected by every other plague. Ten plagues, six are definitely in a position, or seven, to affect all of Egypt, but not God's people in Goshen. Why? Because God will not judge his people along with the wicked. It's not a picture of the rapture, but it gives us examples of how God is not going to judge his people. He'll judge the world for their sin. Our sin has been forgiven because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reality of the rapture in the New Testament that my son didn't believe in, uh, and now believes in, and David is a firm believer in the pre-trib rapture. And I put no pressure on him. In fact, I never put any pressure on Ray or anybody to believe what I believe. I want my kids to study the Word of God. I want them to be faithful in teaching the Word of God. John 14, 1 through 3, very interesting language that Jesus gave his disciples. And this is, this is pre-Pentecost, obviously, right, in the Gospels. So the rapture is not revealed clearly ever in any passage before Paul reveals it clearly. But there are pictures, there are hints, and Jesus said this, and Ray quoted this in prayer meeting this morning, at least part of it. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is teaching, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, I like to think of the new heavens and new earth, and the apartment building we're going to live in, 1,500 miles high and 1,500 miles square. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. He doesn't talk about coming to earth the second time. He talks about receiving his church to himself. Interesting language, very interesting language, that where I am, there ye may be also. Acts chapter 8 is very key on this as well, because there's an encounter with Philip the deacon, with uh, the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to the Gaza, or it's the Gaza Strip, I should say, and they are in a position where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah, and it's explained to him by Philip, and he says, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may, and he goes down the water, and this is what happens. Acts chapter 8, verse 39 and 40. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched, harpazo, 
Philip away. Harpazo means to snatch or to seize, right? That's what it means. It's, it's the word for caught up. It, it just is a, a term of, it's almost violent. It's so quick. Snatch Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, 20 miles away. You talk about teleportation. I've seen, I, I, I was a kid, I was watching Star Trek, you know, the teleporter and everything. Can you imagine being in one place and the next in the twinkling of an eye, maybe, maybe the blink, but a twinkling of the eye, you're 20 miles away. I wonder how Philip handled that. How are you going to handle it when you're standing here and all of a sudden you're with the Lord? Wow. I get excited. I can't help it, beloved. I'm rather tame this morning compared to what I usually am. Wow. Rapture not taught in the Bible. Rapture's taught everywhere in the Bible. Pictures all over the place. But the mystery is revealed by the Apostle Paul. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those common verses we use for the rapture because I'm trying to prove the timing of the rapture, when it's going to happen. But 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53 tells us a little bit about the mystery, and that's where he uses the word mystery. There are various mysteries in the New Testament Paul revealed that had never been revealed before. Verse 51, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, will not all die, because the New Testament has the picture of sleep as death. But we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, not the blink. It's when the sun hits your eye, and there's a twinkle. Can't even imagine. You talk about elevator rides. I've been on some very interesting elevator rides, okay? But there's nothing like this one. <laughs> nothing like this one. You won't even feel it. You'll be here and boom with the Lord. You won't even know you've been teleported, so to speak. It says this in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Now, Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, talks about there are various trumpets used for various purposes of gathering the leaders together in the camp, gathering all the people together in the camp, and they're blown for various reasons. So there are various trumpets in the New Testament. So it says this, in the moment, in the twinkling of my eye, at the last trumpet, the last trumpet for what? The last trumpet for God is being done with his church. When every last Jew and Gentile, more Gentiles than Jews, it used to be more Jews than Gentiles in the Old Testament, now it's more Gentiles than Jews. When everyone is done, God is brought into his body, all those are supposed to be there, the church is done. Then he begins to work with Israel again. That's another subject, but it's very true. Romans chapter 11 will tell you that. When the fullness, not the times of the Gentiles, where they trample down the Jewish people like they're doing now, but the fullness of the Gentiles come in. When every last Gentile is saved, then all Israel will be saved. Now, there's always a remnant of Jews. There'll be a remnant of Jews in the future that's called all Israel because you're not Israel until you believe in Christ, the real spiritual Israel of God. So at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, meaning we're not going to decay anymore. And believe me, I'm decaying. Just ask my wife. I am decaying. My hair is not thick anymore. I don't have much up here. Uh, you know, and there's things, uh, sagging, bagging, you name it. It's, 
the truth of the matter, I'm rotting on my feet, okay? This is just the way life is. You better get used to it. I'm having a hard time at 73. I'm thinking, God, I can't take this. I love working out. I love my man cave. I love all this stuff I do. And now I have to be a little diminished in what I do. And I'm sure you were praying for me when I had open heart surgery. As you can tell, I'm fine. After two months, I was back in the pulpit. You guys were praying. It was pretty awesome. So I'm very grateful to God. Very grateful to God for what he's done in our lives and the wife he's given me. Don't you men ever forget that the woman behind you is the strength behind you, okay? We can joke all we want to, but my wife has been faithful to me all these years and been supportive of me. We're going on 50. Now, back on the subject at hand, I feel guilty because I didn't have her stance. Honey, you're going to stand. Yes, you are. You're going to face everybody. Everybody. My wife, come on, you're going to stand. She is the best-looking, older, slightly older woman in Kern Valley Bible Church. I think it's true of the valley. Now, see how I'm trying to kiss up to her? Because I am very submissive. Okay. I just want to keep it on a tone of being thankful. I'm perishing, and I'm immortal, and I'm going to put on immortality, and so are you. You know, the Word of God makes it clear. To live for Christ, that's what you do. You want to live for Christ. But to die is gain. Philippians 1.21, we have such a poor view of death, beloved. We just go home to be with the Lord, and we have eternity. We need to not live apathetic lives or compromised lives. Now, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and remember, 1 and 2 Thessalonians were, Paul was ministering to the church for about three Sabbaths, and probably some in-home Bible studies, and everything was going on during that time, but he taught Bible prophecy, and so they were expecting the Lord's coming, and Paul didn't know when the Lord was going to come, he was expecting his coming too as well. Even though his writings are inspired by God, he was always looking for the second coming of Christ, or, in our case, when we're talking about the rapture of the church. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and this is a model church of the New Testament. It's probably the church that has least said about it that is negative. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who does what? Rescues us from the wrath to come. Not hell. I don't have to worry about hell. But these believers were worried that the day of the Lord was already taking place, as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians. And it's interesting when you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and let's just read it. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. See, when you die, you're absent from the body, you're at home with the Lord. When we die, our bodies remain in the, tomb, uh, in the grave, just like the Jews of the Old Testament until the second coming of Christ. And when we come back, we're coming back. The dead, if we die, we come back with him and we're reunited with our bodies. Sounds phenomenal, doesn't it? That's exactly what this scripture is teaching. 
will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those who have died, he's going to bring with them, but their bodies remain in the grave. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, they'll come out of the, they'll come out of the graves, their bodies will, and we'll go up with them at the same time to meet the Lord in the air. And that's what it goes on to say. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. That's harpazo again, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. I want you to know I'm not running out of water. I just have a small cup, but I'm not running out yet. We're going to be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That sounds very much like John 14, 1 through 3, where he says, we're going to be gathered together unto him. What's interesting about this passage when we read it, it says, comfort one another with these words. In other words, you guys are not in the tribulation period, talking to the Thessalonians. Comfort one another with these words because what's going to happen is one day, no matter what suffering you're going through, and they had horrendous suffering by the Gentiles, you will be caught up to be with the Lord before the day of the Lord starts, which is a period of like 24 hours, like you look at a clock and you say a day is 24 hours, where it's an extended period of time like a clock that goes for 24 hours, but the day of the Lord might extend from the rapture of the church all the way through the new heavens and new earth. And the context is interesting. When you get done reading this passage about the rapture, the next thing you talk about, there are no chapter divisions in the New Testament. Everything was capital letters. Everything was run together. There was no punctuation, no nothing. They wanted to get the most on the page they could get. So you have chapter 2, but chapter 2 follows the rapture. Listen to what it says. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our what? Our gathering together unto him. That you not be quickly shaken from composure or disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, the one thing I want to say is I want to back up for a minute to 1 Thessalonians 5, where it calls the period of the day of the Lord a time of peace and safety, and sudden destruction comes upon them. They don't think of the rapture happening. They have some excuse for us being gone all over the world. It's going to devastate the world economies, right? But right after that, the world's glad to get rid of us, I think. That's what it seems. And so what happens? They have peace and safety for a time, especially during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Not much said about that period, either in the book of Revelation. Not much said in Matthew, by the way, Matthew 24. So when I read 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, I want to highlight that the order was the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the next thing to be talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5 was the day of the Lord following the rapture. And I kind of skipped that because I'm thinking about time. And I do have plenty of time. So we read on in 2 Thessalonians. 
You do not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, the beast of revelation, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat. He's standing in Matthew 24, verse 15. Now he takes his seat. He sits in the temple of God, and God allows it. And eventually, he probably puts his idol there because he's a European leader. He's got ten nations under him, according to the book of Revelation. But he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And God allows it. In the Old Testament, he would be dead. Anybody stepped into the Holy of Holies who was not a high priest, not accompanied by blood and by incense, by a cloud to protect them, he was dead. But God's going to allow this deception. He takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember what, while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And I can just imagine everybody saying, you're going too fast. And in my heart of hearts, the reason I read that passage is because I want to back up and go real slow. You'll notice our gathering together unto him is a subject in verse 1 of chapter 2. And I'm using the New American Standard. I would use the SV, but I've been using the New American Standard for, ugh, I can't even count back how many years, probably 50 years. What does it say? It's our gathering together unto him. The day of the Lord is not going to come until what? Verse 3. The apostasy comes first. Now, if you looked at this in English and you pronounced it, you'd say apostasia. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It's just brought over into English. It looks like apostasia. But that's not what the Greek word is. It's apostasis or apostia. It has the idea of conveying departure, to go from one place to another or depart, like apostasy, fall away from the faith. It's used two times only in the New Testament. One time here and one time, I think it's in Peter, about apostasy, okay, or in Timothy. And we can't be dogmatic on that it doesn't mean just the word depart, because that's the simplest way to look at it. What is the subject? Our gathering together unto him. The day of the Lord will not happen until the departure happens first or comes first. Wow. Could very well be the rapture of the church. J. Vernon McGee believed this was both the apostasy of the organized church, which we see in our day, the falling away from the faith, being woke, being politically correct, but he also felt it was the departure of the church, that the church would depart when the organized church departed from the Lord, we would depart, the true church would depart and be with the Lord. Uh, there's division on this whole subject. Some people feel like we're seeing the apostasy in our day, the apostasy will be great, and then the man of sin will be revealed. 
that, that could be very true. But then you've got another subject in this passage which tells us that there's a restraining force, okay? And when you get down to the restrainer, he's restraining the Antichrist from being revealed. It's kind of like Lot being in Sodom until Lot is taken out. Sodom can't be destroyed. So this restrainer is keeping Antichrist from being revealed. When he's revealed, that begins the day of the Lord. Now, some people have said we believe it's the military is the restraining force. Uh, it's human government is the restraining force. Uh, that just doesn't meet up with interpretation because it says, verse 6, and you know who restrains him now, the Antichrist, so that in his time he will be revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, personal pronouns. Can't be government. It can't be police. It, it can't be any of that. It, it can't be the military. It, it's somebody who's a person. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. We believe that he is the Holy Spirit. He's the restrainer. And if he's the restrainer and he dwells in you, guess what you are? You're a restrainer. When we're gone, evil is going to break loose like nobody's ever seen before during the tribulation period. It's true. It's a time of peace and safety during the first three and a half years. But if you read Matthew uh, verse 9 down to verse 14, you're going to find out the gospel. The kingdom will be preached in all the world. Lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. And believers that come to know Christ during that day are going to suffer, even early in the tribulation period. But they will be beheaded in the second part of the, what we call the Great Tribulation Period. This is heavy stuff. <laughs> no doubt about it. Heavy stuff. And we're not even going into the Great Deception. I could read on, but I want to save some time because Revelation is critical. Uh, so when we look at a passage like Revelation 3.10, and I don't have that one in my own, so I'm going to turn to it. If it's not on the screen, you can turn to it too, because we're going to be in the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there, you can. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. This is the church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. And what do they do that this church does, and I believe my church does, Kern Valley Bible Church? Verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And it just speaks about their ability to keep the word of God. They love the word of God. They have a little power because they love the word of God. Verse 10, because you have kept the word... It's not negotiable. The Word of God is the Word of God. The law of Christ is contained from Romans to Jew. Law of Christ is 1 Corinthians 9.21. It says we're not under law, the Old Testament law, but we are under the law of Christ. You want to know how to please God? Read Romans to Jude. But you should read the whole Bible over and over and over and over again. Joshua was told that's the way he was going to have success in his life. 
Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, you've been faithful. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's never been a time like that. The tribulation period is going to be the greatest time of testing there's ever been, the greatest time of God's wrath. Matthew 24, verse, around verse 21 says, there's nothing ever been like the great tribulation. Nothing. It's how bad it's going to be. But he will keep them from the hour. It shouldn't be apo. It should be ek. He'll keep them out of. Here we go again. Caught up to be with the Lord. He's going to take us out of that time of testing. And guess what's going to happen to the church at Thyatira? They're going to go through the great tribulation. It says it right there in Revelation chapter 2, verse 22. Interesting, isn't it? The book of Revelation, we think it's for believers. We study it. We we read it. There's a blessing to those who read and understand this book. But once you get past chapter 3, the book of Revelation is all Jewish. Why? We're not here. We're not here, beloved. It's just that simple. And there's amazing language to go along with that. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. I love pictures, and I can't say I can prove every picture is talking about the rapture, but this one's dramatic. Chapter 1 is exalting Christ. He's the hub of the wheel. He's in the center of the seven churches. They all have candlesticks, all of them, even though there are only two that are commended out of the seven churches. A lot of those churches are just compromised, and Thyatira is wicked. So then you get into a description of those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Chapter 4, listen to the language of this. It might be on the screen, I don't know. I'm not even going to look. After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. After these things, what? The church. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you the things that take place after these things, the church. John's caught up to heaven. Oh, is that a picture? I believe it is. Why? Because the outline for Revelation is given to us in 119 and talks about the things that are, or the things you've seen, rather, the things that are and the things that will be after those things, the things of the seven churches. So he's actually giving us an outline of the book of Revelation to understand it, just like Matthew 24 gives an outline. You can fit it right into the book of Revelation. Oh, I could say so much about this. I really could say a lot about it, but I'm going to go in order of notes because that's the way I gave it. Turn over Revelation 19, or it might be up on the PowerPoint. Revelation 19, 7 through 9. We've got to be married to the Lamb. We've got to be married. The church is experiencing the cleansing of Christ. He's making us worthy. And it talks about that in Ephesians 5. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, it says. So the bride is made ready. So if we go up pre-trib seven years and a time, maybe even earlier than seven years, maybe there'll be a transition period between the rapture and the signing of a peace pact with Israel. We go up and we're with the Lord, right? Well, we come back down in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the reception. So the bride comes back and there's a reception. And you say to yourself, wow, a reception? Then the marriage took place in heaven. And there's going to be reception when Christ comes back in his second coming. And we're going to see the earth from heaven without a capsule. We're going to be accompanying the Lord from heaven. Strong. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen like you saw in verses 7 through 9. White and clean were following him on white horses. Wow. The Bible is very descriptive in symbolic language that is to be interpreted literally. In the sense that what is an army on horses were coming to make war against the earth. And Christ is overcoming all his enemies. And he is going to do what? Matthew 25. He's going to sit on his glorious throne judging between the sheep and the goats. Those who took care of his people and those who didn't take care of his people during that time. And you say, okay, I understand some of this. I don't understand all of it. I want you to turn back to Revelation chapter 7. And if it's on the screen, you don't have to turn. Hundred and forty-four thousand Jewish witnesses. When are they going to minister? What are they going to do? Well, when you look at chapter seven, and I've got to get there. What does it say? Got so much writing on my. On my Bible, it's smeared all over the place. Sometimes I can't find the chapter. Uh, when you look at verse 4 through 8, let's just read it. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he lists the tribe except for Dan, and he uses the tribes of Judah, uh, I should say Joseph, the two half-tribes to become, make the twelve. Because Dan was in such apostasy in the book of Judges, Dan will eventually be included again, but not until after uh, the millennium, or maybe during that time. Back up for a minute. When is going to be this ministry of 144,000? Let's just read it, verse 2 of chapter 7. I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. In other words, there's been no judgment yet. Hmm. Sounds like the first three and a half years of the tribulation. No judgment on the earth. Not the seals, not the trumpets, not the thunders, not the vials. None of that. No judgment. The earth has not been touched yet. That happens when Antichrist stands and sits in the temple of God. That's when the wrath of God is poured out, Revelation chapter 12. 
So, what does it say here? It says, to those angels, do not harm the earth or the sea. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea, verse 3, or trees, until we have sealed the bond servants of God in their foreheads. See, God has a mark too. It's an invisible mark. Antichrist, his, his hand, he has a mark on the hand or in the forehead. God just marks these witnesses in their foreheads, meaning their mind is set on God. That's their purpose in life. That's, that's how God has chosen them. And he does that sovereignly. He saved you sovereignly. He dragged you to himself. John 6, 44. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 37. He has forgiven all of us. He'll forgive his people. He'll forgive his chosen people. It will be God who does that. It won't be them. They don't deserve it. We don't deserve it either, but he will do it. Now, the outcome of this is there are no chapter divisions in the Word of God. So when you get down to the end of chapter 7, right in the middle, it says in verse 9, after these things I looked, after the 144,000 were sealed, right? And behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues. Can I hear an amen? Are we sick of the talk about racism within our nation? Racism is all over the world. It's not just white and black. It's every nationality there is. Uh, mankind is so bent by sin they feel superior. But here, the Jewish people are going to do what they should have done in the Old Testament. God is going to use them to reach the Gentiles. To not call us dogs, unclean, uncircumcised, but to really love the Gentiles. And people are going to be saved all over the world during that first three and a half years of the tribulation period. As we look on, it goes on to say, they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of great tribulation, the greatest time of suffering when it says in Revelation 20, people that love the Lord will be beheaded for the cause of Christ. These have come out of great tribulation. They have died. They've been martyred. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Wow. Seems to be directly related to 144,000 Jewish Apostle Pauls. That's what I call them. They're going to evangelize the world. We thought we were going to do it, but Matthew 24, verse 14 says, the, whole, the, whole, the gospel will be presented in all the world, and then the end shall come. Blessed are those who endure unto the end. And I'm only paraphrasing it. The outcome of these witnesses... A lot of people get saved. Why aren't we there? Because we are raptured before the tribulation. The Jewish people are going to do a great evangelism. Those 144,000 are finally going to do what they should have done in the Old Testament. And the two witnesses of Revelation 11 are going to condemn the world. And they're in the streets of Jerusalem. And their ministries last for the entire great tribulation, three and one half years. They are martyred in the streets of Jerusalem. The world's rejoicing and sending gifts to one another like Christmas. And then they're caught up with God. 
and Jesus returns because that's the end of the great tribulation period. It's the end of the entire seven-year period. And you just shake your head. What about us? If we're going up pre-trib, what's going to happen to us? And I, I want to summarize this. I still have plenty of time. Thank God. I tell you, Ray, you gave me plenty of time. The Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. You don't have this in, your, in, in the screen, so let's go back to Romans chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn. Otherwise, I'll turn there and read it to you. Verse 10 of Romans 14. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, the Bema seat, judgment of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God so that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Oh, beloved, I've always been scared, especially when I wasn't right with the Lord. There was a time in my life when my wife went to church with the kids. They were young, and I stayed at home and watched the Boston Celtics or watched football. Or, and I was called to minister, and I was way out of fellowship. And my wife had a bunch of women praying for me at the church she was attending at that time. And I wept for days once I got right with the Lord. And you know what scared me? What if you came today? What if you came when I'm not living for you? When I was called to minister the word of God and I wasn't doing it. And what about my kids? What about my wife going to church by herself? And it scared me. It scared me straight. I got right with the Lord, and I wept for days, and I remember laying in bed, and I always use this illustration, but I said, honey, I got to go back to ministry, and she said, I just wanted you to go to church. <laughs> At first, not too excited. Ministry is a lot of responsibility. Wives of a pastor, they, they're very active in church. They just are. They're the backbone behind their men, and she's been that to me, and she put up with me during those years. And I'm so grateful that she had women praying for me to get me right with the Lord. That's, that's been over probably 35 years ago now. Uh, I'm so grateful that we can, we can be Jonah. We can go get off track, and, and God will put us back on track again. We just have to be humble enough to admit that we're sinners saved by grace. And, and the greatest example of grace is Israel itself. So I look at this Bema seat and I say, wow, that's not the great white throne of Revelation 20. That's when you're judged out of the books. How would you like to be judged out of books? Everything you've ever done, every idle word, I, I think, of the lost. They want to be judged according to their works. They think they're good enough to make it, right? Well, they're not good enough to make it without Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. There's no other way. And there's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12, Peter said that on the day of Pentecost. Or later than Pentecost, I should say. Well, in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, turn there if you would. Next book over from Romans, 1 Corinthians 3. We get a little idea about Paul and Apollos being servants of Christ. 
and I really just want to get to heaven. But it says in verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on that foundation of Christ with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. What do you want your works to be? When you're caught up to be the Lord and you're in heaven and he, we are each one of us standing before the beam of seat of Christ for rewards or lack of rewards. Do you want your works to be wood, hand, stubble? Or do you want them to be the value of gold and silver and precious stone? It's your choice. The Christian life is all about choices we make, beloved. And I've made bad ones in my life. And I'm just thankful I'm going to get there. And most of us are probably just thankful we're going to get there. But how do we want to get there? That's the whole question for me. And finally this morning, the last point I'm going to talk about is the Feast of Israel. And when you look at the Feast of Israel, I know them by heart. Um, They're given to us in uh, Leviticus 23. First one is Passover. Christ is our Passover. Unleavened bread. He's unleavened. He was sinless. And we're to act without malice or ill will uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. We're to have the uh, unleavened bread of sincerity of truth in our lives. Then you have first fruits. That's the Sunday. That's when he raises from the dead. He becomes the first fruits of them that slept. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Uh, And then you have Pentecost. That's us, beloved. Do you know Pentecost has never ended? It's still going. We're still in Pentecost. How do we know that? Because he's not done with his church yet. When he's done with his church, Pentecost will be over. And yet there are three feasts left. They're all prophetic. They're all prophetic. The Feast of Trumpets. We think of Israel being regathered in 1948. That's just a little bit. They're all over the world. Jews are all over the world. One day they're going to be regathered supernaturally by the Lord. It makes it very clear in Matthew 24. They're going to be regathered, his elect, because Matthew 24 and 25 is Jewish, right? It's Jewish. You can look high and low. You're you're always going to be dealing with Jewish principles and Jewish teaching for his disciples who were Jewish at that time, but related to the end times that we're living in. So there's going to be a great regathering, but it's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Will there be a good one during the tribulation period when the Antichrist signs a peace pact with Israel and restores their worship? But in the middle of that week, in the middle of seven years, he sits and stands in the temple of God to show himself that he's God. Revelation 13 talks about it. He'll bring temporary peace to the world. It's only temporary. We're a bunch of sinners. We can't hardly get along in the church let alone looking at the world of the lost and seeing them get along with one another. His peace around the world will just decay rapidly. And there'll be the Battle of Armageddon. And it will, it will be a military campaign that will take some months, if not a few years. It might take most of the Great Tribulation period that last three and a half years. 
that God's people will be regathered. Blowing of trumpets. The Day of Atonement. The National Day in Leviticus 16 where the high priest offered up a lamb for himself. And then he offered up one for the people. And it was more than just that, believe me. And there's a lot of things that go into the Day of Atonement. But he needed to be cleansed of his sin. The Jewish people needed to be cleansed of their sin. It was all by blood. And then, guess what? Every implement of the tabernacle had to be cleansed. One time a year. And it was a constant reminder every year of sin, Hebrews tells us. And the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. They will finally recognize their Messiah. And I've got one full-blown Jew in my congregation who's trusted in Christ. And I will point him out once I say, Brother Cliff, it's so good to have you with us, man. A Jewish brother in Christ. Because you don't see that many saved. There is Jews for Jesus. There are different groups that minister to the Jews. But basically, you take them to Isaiah 53 and read it to them and they'll say don't talk to me about your messiah what just reading from your old testament jews don't want to hear about jesus they have a veil over their face according to second corinthians chapter three and that veil is taken away in christ thank god and then you have the feast of booths where god dwells among his people the millennial reign of christ he dwells among his people. You will be my people and I shall be your God, he says repeatedly in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, which is pretty much just dealing with the millennial reign of Christ. You can read it. It, it will talk about their regathering. It will talk about the, how large a people they will be. It will also talk about other issues like a flat plain being flattened for all of Israel and Jerusalem will be raised up on a mountain. And although it's called a hill, it's going to be a lot different for people to travel and see this mountain that is talked about in the book of Zechariah. Can't wait, beloved. Death is not something to be afraid of. You don't want to push it. You're young. You're going to have children, a ton of children, according to what Ray shared with me. And I think you had 70 youth or whatever. I'm thinking... This church, because James is young, Ray is young, the wives are young, you're all going to grow old together like my church. And someday you'll be a retirement church. I hope not. But I don't think we're far from the rapture. And I'll tell you why I personally don't think that. Because we have gone much further than Sodom and Gomorrah. We have. The Canaanite culture was bankrupt. They were. Little children all the way to adults wanting to have relationships with two angels. That was the Canaanite culture. And look at what we've done today. Oh, there are more than two genders. If you believe that, you have to disagree with Jesus. Who's going to disagree with Jesus here? Nobody. We know the truth, beloved, and the truth sets us free, and the world is in bondage. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is perishing, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Beloved, we better wake up. If you don't think we're going to suffer as believers, they go after the Jew first and then they're going to go after us. Why? Because they're the little Satan and we're the great Satan. 
and our own people have been indoctrinated. Don't send your kids to colleges and universities. Maybe trade schools. Don't send them to some prominent institution that's going to indoctrinate your kids and turn them away from the faith. Because that's what's happened in major cities around our country. We are in very dark days, but you know the greatest thing is? We know Christ. And no day is dark if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, I know I might have gone fast. But it was on the screen. So if I was turning all the time and you were turning all the time, it probably would have been an hour and 15 minutes. But now it's been 50 minutes. And Ray said, close in prayer. Should I close now in prayer? See, I did it faster. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for my own home church, Father. I always miss them, and I'll, I'll love standing in my own pulpit next week, Father. But I enjoy this too, Lord. I enjoy being with your people. And I love the melting pots. Father, a lot of people don't come to the country. We just have a handful of nationalities. But in the city, you have a melting pot. And my preacher friend that was a boxer said to me, God made a beautiful bouquet of flowers. Father, that's what we are. We're a beautiful bouquet of flowers to your son's glory. We thank you for this time. If there be anybody that doesn't know Christ, some reason they're visiting today and you've touched their heart with a truth of coming judgment in the future, Father, I pray that they'll bow the knee to you, that they'll admit they're a sinner, that they need Christ. Father, bless the remainder of our fellowship in a time of food and time of question and answers in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.